So um, right now, we have all of these issues. And they're not just locally oriented. It is, is there's issues that are going on in our world that are so unbelievably big. They're bigger than the answers that we have. We have this worldwide virus. Um, we have 20% unemployment. We have a ravaged travel industry. We have continued shutdowns or limited openings. We have multiple international conflicts. We have an election year where people are more polarized as an electorate than I thought was possible after last elections. In addition, we have rioting in many of our major cities along with looting and violence. It's best not to ask if things can get worse because four weeks ago we thought, surely this is, this is it. Studies are showing that the chaos is taking its toll. Mental health needs are skyrocketing. Express Scripts, which is a pharmacy, they recently released a report called America's State of Mind. Their research shows that the number of prescriptions filled for antidepressants and anti-insomnia drugs saw a 21% increase. Anti-anxiety drugs had the biggest increase at 34.1%. Welcome to worship, by the way. Encouraging, huh? A week ago, I mentioned that alcohol sales were up significantly during the pandemic. Spirits like tequila and cocktails um, jumped. The sales jumped by 75% compared to the same period last year. Wine sales went up 66%. Beer sales rose 42%. Online sales of alcohol were up 243%. Many researchers are now saying that America is facing an unprecedented mental health crisis. In, in many ways, we're living in a Charlie Brown kind of world, right? It's, I mean, you, you think about it. Charlie Brown, you know, the just uh, things most often don't go right. Um, it's, it's, um, it's that kind of world. Um, Charles um, Schultz himself noted is, is that in his comic strips that the football is always pulled away. The losers are, or the loves of life are always unmet. The great pumpkin never comes. And just like um, for us, there isn't always an easy answer. You know, sometimes it's easy to feel, feel that way. In the Phoenix comic strip, Lucy um, came into her house one day and says, boy, do I feel crabby. Her brother Linus, who is just the most empathetic guy in the world, don't you love Linus? And uh, Linus, in, in spite of the fact that his sister does nothing but pick on him, he quickly tries to rescue his sister. And so he says, maybe I can help. Um, why don't you just take my place here in front of the TV and I'll go fix you a nice snack. You know, sometimes we all need a little pampering to feel better, don't we? And then Linus brings her a sandwich and some chocolate chip cookies and some milk. Is there anything else that I can get for you, he asks. Is there anything I haven't thought of? Yes, there's one thing that you haven't thought of, Lucy responds, and then she says, I don't want to feel any better. Is that's uh, classic uh, peanuts? Is is that um, in um, the peanuts um, strips? There's always this sense of is is that hey, we're always just a little bit down, and yet in the midst of it, there's always Snoopy, who has um, a better outlook on life and his empty bubble. <laughs> um, you know, where do we look when there? Are, isn't always an easy answer when life is in the pits. That's really why I felt prompted um, to look at this sermon series that we're on right now. I'm calling this sermon series, Big Problems, Bigger God. 
The other night, we were watching The Voice, which if you watch it, please don't tell us who wins. We're a little bit behind. But I was really encouraged by the number of songs that were God-honoring. Todd Tilgman is one of the youngest, oldest guys in the season. He's 41. And uh, the only reason that he signed up for The Voice was because his wife um, pushed him to do it. Outside of church, he's a lead pastor of a church. And outside of church, he had never um, really been on stage before. And he's on Blake Shelton's team. And, uh, and Blake Shelton um, picked the song, I Can Only Imagine. And it was tear-worthy. Um, at least as I looked around and saw Kim's face, there were tears. So I held it together somehow. <laughs> And I thought, how many people are getting encouraged right now because God is being honored on a public platform? And and I've been shocked over the years at the number of Christian songs that have been sung on The Voice. It's really been surprising to me that we have a culture that is pushing Christianity to the side, and yet our music is on one of the largest public platforms in the world right now. The music that comes out of the church, the music that we find that gives us hope and gives us encouragement and and the culture is finding enough hope in it to to allow it to be sung on public platforms and that a pastor can can be up there and and that um, Blake Shelton chooses a song that would not only represent the pastor, but would represent so much more to America right now. When, when all of, they're, they're, they're singing from their homes and it's really kind of amazing to watch and, and it was so encouraging and, and I just thought of something and so I went over and I grabbed my uh, sermon prep notebook. Yep, I have a sermon prep notebook and I, this is how I prepare for my sermons most of the time is, is I take notes during the week. There's 11 pages of notes for this week. And I went over and I grabbed my notebook and here's what I wrote down. We must bring confidence, conviction, and faith to the present problems that people have. We must bring confidence, convictions, and faith to the present problems that people have. When the situation seems hopeless, we have to remember that we have a God who is bigger than all of our problems. That's the reason for this series, Big Problems, Bigger God. In uh, Romans chapter um, 15, the apostle Paul says, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of all hope, not a little bit of hope, not a glimmer, the God of all hope, fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope, with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to say this very clearly. There is a link between hopelessness and misplaced trust. There's a link between hopelessness and trusting in the wrong things. Keep this in mind as we jump into Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced to four young men who are likely in their teens. All of them are exiles from Judah. Following the defeat of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had gone against Jerusalem. 
had um, deposed the king of Jerusalem, had taken many of the elite families of Jerusalem and exiled them to Babylon. Some of them were pressed into the service of the king. Chapter 1 of Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar um, took some of these young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and they, were, they excelled exceptionally more than all of the other young people in their class, so to speak. And yet, while they excelled, they continued to hold on to the customs of their faith. Now, there's a little bit of a gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2, which is confusing um, to scholars, and I'm not going to go into that. Needless to say, some time has passed, maybe as much as two or three years. And Nebuchadnezzar is agitated. His sleep has been disrupted by dreams. And the dreams are so confusing and so concerning that he wants to know their meaning. And so Daniel chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 say, So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell them what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So these dreams are so troubling. He's, he's so um, discouraged by what he has dreamed that he wants to know the meaning of it. And so in verse 4, it says, Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And the king's response is very interesting. And rather t- telling. The king seems to know that his servants aren't nearly as wise as they think they are. He knows, he, he probably knows that they're very shrewd. They know how to play the game. They are politicians like they have been taught to be. They know how to tell a king the kinds of things that he would want to hear for their own advancement. And so we're told that the king replied to the astrologers, verse 5 and following, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Have you ever been in a no-win situation? This is a you lose and you lose kind of situation. There's no hope. And the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, they know it. In many places in Scripture, we're told that it was a common practice among these experts to practice divination. Divination in the Bible is expressly forbidden by God. In Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 11, it says that when you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you. And so this is Moses speaking to Israel. And he's saying, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. That's really a lot of the job of these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. 
and they know that they will never be able to read enough animal livers. livers. That's part of it is, is divination is, is they'd sacrifice an animal, they take the liver out, they'd look at the shape of the liver and be able to kind of tell people what's going on. And so they'd never be able to um, look at enough animal livers, never say enough chants, never cast enough spells, or read the stars or consult their occultic books enough to know of a dream that they haven't been told. And, you know, we might think it's kind of odd that people would do those kinds of things, look at animal river, livers and all of the other stuff, and yet on TV regularly you can see advertisements for spiritists if you're up late at night. And we still have tarot cards today and Ouija boards. And all of that is that temptation to kind of consult the spiritual world. All of it, God says, don't do. Nebuchadnezzar, knowing that these wise men had a penchant for playing politics, wants the so-called wise men to tell him both the content and the meaning of the dream. In verses 7 and following, the wise men said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that is what I have finally firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods who do not live among humans. The next verse tells us, that this makes Nebuchadnezzar so furious and so angry that he orders all of the wise men of Babylon to be executed. Now, this is where Daniel and the boys come in. Arioch, the king's commander, begins to arrest all of the wise men of Babylon for their eventual execution. When he gets to Daniel, Daniel says, what would cause the king to issue such an order? And Arioch fills Daniel in. And here's what Daniel does. He asks for some time. He asks Arioch to let the king know that he will interpret the dream. And then in verses 17 through 19, it says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to plead for mercy from God, the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel praised the God of heaven. Now, remember that earlier the sages of Babylon had said, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks and they're right, in a sense. They're right. They argue only the gods know such things, and they don't dwell among humans. In their eyes, the situation is hopeless. 
Now, I also said earlier that there's a link between hopelessness and misplaced trust. The truth is, is that trusting in human wisdom will eventually fail us. Our bodies, trusting in our bodies is a mistake because eventually our bodies will betray us. Most of our policies and politics will fall short of meeting the real needs of people. And apart from God, Daniel is in the exact same situation as the rest of the wise men. There is nothing in Daniel that will help him solve the problem he's facing, and he knows it. And so he doesn't look on the inside. He doesn't lean on his superior intellect, on his Babylonian education, or on his political know-how, even though we're told in chapter 1 that his knowledge is is 10 times that of everyone else in his class. But he doesn't look inside. Instead, he does this, and I want to give you three words that will help you to remember how we might come at the problems of our day. And so he does three things. He pauses. He prays and he positions. Pause, praise, and position. I wanted to keep it real simple so that we could remember it. Pause, pray, and position. Can you say that out loud with me? Pause, pray, position. You're so good. Kyle always does that kind of stuff to you. I never do that. So Kyle should be proud of me. Where is he? I said it in the first service too. Okay. Anyway, um, he pauses. He asks Arioch for some time. Go tell the king that I'll interpret the dream. Pray. He recruits his friends and they take the mystery to the God of heaven and then positions. He recognizes that there's nothing inside of himself. There's, there's no standing that he has that can solve this problem. He clearly recognizes that God is the source of true wisdom. And he, he, he takes on humility. He says, God, I can't do this. I, I can't do this without you. I need you to show up right now. Only you can solve this problem. And we're told um, that, that after God comes to him and reveals in a vision the dream, the content of the dream and the interpretation. Daniel says in verse 23, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power and have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. When Daniel finally stands before Nebuchadnezzar, Verse 27 and 28 says, Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Can you sense the humility? This isn't something that we can do. But I love the buts in Scripture. They're just awesome. They bring that shift that is so desperately needed. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And Daniel goes on to give Nebuchadnezzar both the content of the dream and the meaning. And the content of the dream has to deal with the future. There's a large statue with a head of pure gold, a chest of silver, legs of iron, and feet of clay. And Nebuchadnezzar, as Nebuchadnezzar was watching a rock struck the statue, breaking the statue into pieces and casting all of the elements in different directions. And Daniel goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar that the most glorious part of the statue is represented by him, that he is the most powerful ruler in the world and that there is none other like him in a worldly sense. The rest of the statue represents inferior nations that will follow him. But the rock, the rock is more powerful than all. The rock isn't of human origin. It represents a kingdom that will never be destroyed and that will never come to an end. And it smashes the statue representing the other kingdoms of the world. And in verse 46 and 47, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. The most powerful king in the world prostrates himself in front of a servant. Where the wise men of Babylon proved to be both pretentious and incompetent, Daniel proved to be humble, faithful, and wise. The wise men had the best degrees that the world would offer. They had their craft, their art, and their education. They had everything that the world could offer. A number of years ago, a researcher by the name of Daniel Goleman wrote a book based on research that he had done about IQ. And what he found was is that IQ alone, intelligence alone, even if you are more intelligent than all others, that it isn't enough to deal with most of the situations and most of the problems in life. In fact, after significant research, he found that only 20% of success in life can be attributed to IQ. The other 80% is the result of other forces. He called these things EQ, which is emotional intelligence. And his argument was is that emotional intelligence is also needed. EQ includes self-control, deep personal awareness, motivation, empathy, and social skills, which he said were the other 80%. But even with both IQ and EQ, both of, a, what, both of which are necessary for life success, they fall short. And we're seeing that right now. 
We're saying that when you bring everything that, uh, that we can bring as human beings to the problem of our world and the problems of our world, that we still fall short. I mean, they're making unprecedented breakthroughs in the area of science trying to get ahead of this virus. And even if they come up with something that can prevent this virus or treat this virus, there will still be another virus someday down the road. Is you bring all of the intelligence and all of the, the IQ and EQ to the political problems of our day and our streets are still full of rioting. Racism is not solved and our world is getting messier. Goldman rightly identifies the problem and he points us in the right direction, but the solution is still short of what we need. We need help outside of ourselves. We need what only God can give. And we need the body of Christ to stop trying to deal with the world's problems in the same way that the world is dealing with the problems by pursuing better wisdom and more education and, and, um, and you know, more kind of thinking about it. We need people who will get off the couch and stop talking about what politicians will do and stop trying to tell everyone else what we'll do. And people that will say is, is we can't do it. The body of Christ needs to say, we can't do it, Lord. Is it apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. We can't do it. We need you to show up. And there's something that happens when we, and I'm the worst at this, but when we turn off of our devices and the things that we watch and we come to God and we, we push everything else away and we pause and we pray and we position ourselves, literally prostrate before God and say, God, if you don't show up, we're in trouble. We need that help that can only come from him. And as we pray, we find a kind of wisdom that's not available in the world. As we pray, we bring the problems of our world and life's complexity and the world's confusion to the one who knows all things. And we find that he speaks and he speaks to us through his word as we, as we look at how, how he has given us, he's revealed to us how to live and how to come to him and how to, how to follow Jesus in a very broken world. And he speaks to us through his word and he speaks to us as we go to him in prayer, as we, as we take his word and we pray it to him and, and, and we say, Lord, we need your help. Because true wisdom is not IQ or EQ. It is a relationship with the God of heaven and earth. And it is a mindset. The Apostle Paul says, have the same mind as that of Christ. And then when we stop looking at the world through our eyes and instead start looking at the world through the eyes of Jesus, something happens. Because we bring all of these things before the one who has all of the answers that we need. When you think back to Daniel interpreting the dream and referring to a rock that smashes the nations of the world. What rock is he referring to? 
In Luke 20, 17, Jesus quoted Psalm 18, 22, saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in the next verse, Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Much earlier, Peter Jesus asked uh, Peter and the disciples a question, who do people say that I am? And they said some, you know, say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Simon, his name is Simon at that time. Simon, this was not revealed to you by human origin it was revealed to you by my father in heaven and you shall be called peter rock you should be called the rock because on this rock on this rock what what rock peter confessing you are the son of the living god you are the Savior. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this confession, on the knowledge that I am the one, I am the Savior, I am he who you need. <clears throat> on this confession. And there's something that happens when we come to Jesus because, because when we bring our needs, our problems, all of it to Jesus. He not only provides the answer, he is the answer for our broken world. Earlier I said that believers must bring confidence, conviction, and faith to the problems that people have. There's something that happens when we come to the problems of our world. Something happens when we pause, when we pray, and when we position ourselves before God. He has the answer. He is the answer. When we put everything before Jesus and we say, as is Jesus, regardless of what happens, we're going to follow you. If things go well, we're going to follow you. If things go badly, we're going to follow you. Is when everything else spins out of control, we're going to come to the Father and we're going to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray for forgiveness and we, uh, we, we pray that we would be able to forgive others as he has forgiven us and we seek him and we seek his will and we, we seek his kingdom come, knowing is, is that one day it will come whether we pray for it or not. But as, as we bring ourselves before him and we bring these problems before him who is the answer and who has the answer, we... We have a hope that doesn't come from anything that this world can give us. There's a link between the Old Testament and New Testament hope. 
Here's here's what Paul said about the Old Testament. He says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. Daniel, Daniel is written for us so that we can have hope. And in Romans uh, 15, 12 and 13, it says that there is one who will rise up and who will rule and, and he's talking about Jesus. And then he says is, is that about Jesus is made the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Why? Because of something we did? No, because God stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus in order to deal with the problems, the pressing problems of our world. And he took those things on himself all the way to the cross. He literally took the problems onto the cross. And our biggest problem Uh, our biggest problem is sin and death and he took both of them to the cross and defeated both of them. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. We desperately need we desperately need to pause and pray and position ourselves in humility before God. Because he has the answer. But it starts with knowing that he is the answer. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, it starts with him. He is the rock, the cornerstone of everything that God will ever do. And there's something about saying, Is Jesus, I need you. You're my answer to the problems outside of me and the problems inside of me. You're my forgiveness. You're my mercy. You're my grace. Jesus, I put my trust in you. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that. Just say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. And maybe you have done that in the past, but you've strayed or you yeah, hopelessness has entered in. Then it's good just to say, Jesus, I, I just want to reconfirm and recommit. Jesus, let my eyes be fixed on you. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we can have a hope that doesn't come from the circumstances of this world, but comes from you. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you and on Jesus. Help us to regularly pause and pray and position ourselves in humility before you. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. In the name of Jesus, amen.